us in worship. Let's open the word of God, please, to Acts chapter 13. I'm locked up. Uh, just work off the back there, David, okay? Let's go to the first graphic there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The New Testament Gospels. Inspired Scripture, which means that God the Holy Spirit superintended Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as they wrote their Gospels, such that they composed and recorded without any error the exact message God wanted as timeless scriptures in the original manuscripts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we have the documents. We also have four men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the Apostle John. These men were all finite, imperfect people capable of the same kind of selfishness and short-sightedness and sinfulness everybody in this room is. Uh, in other words, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, while believers in Jesus Christ were ultimately just sinners saved by grace and kept by grace, human beings with spiritual weaknesses, finite limitations, and sinful tendencies. And today, we're going to see one of, if not the lowest spiritual moment in the Christian life of a man Acts calls John Mark, but you know him as Mark, the human author of the Gospel of Mark. But we're going to see that the story, and David, let's go to the next uh, graphic there. The story of Mark's major failure in Acts 13 is not the whole story. And I think as we look at that, we can learn about our own feet of clay, and more importantly, the transcendent power of God's grace in the lives of believers, even in the midst of our worst spiritual failures. So let's pray for teachability to that really wonderful truth. And as always, as is our custom, we want to pray for our troops and our peace officers and our firefighters. And uh, I tell you what, David Moore, if you would lead us in opening prayer in that direction, okay? (coughs) Thank you, David. Uh, we enter a new chapter of the book of Acts, as you can tell, chapter 13. So let's uh, review our, our system for remembering the content of the book. Jesus is alive as head of his bride. J stands for what? Jesus ascends to heaven. That's Acts chapter 1. Chapter 2, establishment of the New Testament church in the city of Jerusalem in 33 A.D. on the day of Pentecost. Number three, J-E-S, salvation of a lame beggar, a guy who for decades Solomon had been sitting in front of the main gate into the temple complex and everybody in town knew about him and Peter and John, by God's grace, were able to heal him physically and bring him to saving faith. You, unleashing a persecution for the first time, the powers that be felt like they needed to put a little pressure on church leaders and so... Uh, Peter and John were arrested, held overnight, and kind of told uh, to be nice little boys and don't tell anybody about Jesus anymore. Chapter 5, sin in the church. As bad as external persecution is, the only thing worse is internal corruption in the church. And we're going to find out that even somebody who wrote a New Testament gospel is susceptible to give up and go home to mom when the bullets start flying. So Ananias and Sapphira are involved in some Sketchy. Sketchy is an adjective that uh, my sons like to use, and I'm not sure exactly what it means, but uh, I think it's bad. But uh, Ananias and Sapphira were involved in some sketchy giving. Jesus is, I stands for influence of devoted deacons. We've got issues in the church about distributing uh, help, food, assistance to needy widows, and uh, there, was, there was a kink in the pipeline, and the apostles were summoned the pastor was text, what, what is wrong with you? Why aren't you getting the meals out the way we want them to get uh, passed out? And they basically said, hey, we want to do that as a church, but we've got other things we personally have to do. So we're going to get some people like David Emerson and Mike Palovic 
and James Mitchell, who not only returns as our youth minister, our worship leader, but he also is a happy, most of the time, deacon. So we're happy about that. Uh, Jesus is, chapter 7, Stephen stoned to death. Now, we're getting serious. Uh, they had arrested Peter and John. They had arrested all the apostles in chapter 4. And now they've stoned an, one of the first deacons because he got too visible. And, uh, you know, when you speak truth to power, power strikes back. Okay, Jesus is alive, chapter 8. Abroad with Philip in Samaria and Gaza. You remember, uh, Philip goes to Samaria, that hated area that uh, no pious Jew would go to because they have spiritual cooties and preaches the gospel. A bunch of them get saved. And then he goes, uh, and interacts with a, uh, Ethiopian government official who's a Gentile, not a Jew, and preaches Jesus to him. And the guy gets saved and baptized and it's all all good, but there's some controversy. Can Gentiles really disbelieve and get saved? Uh, next letter, L. This is big. Life comes to Saul slash Paul. Today, Kathy, in chapter 13, we officially changed the name from Saul to Paul, and I'll stop doing Saul slash Paul. But uh, after some events we'll see today, he goes by Paul for the rest of his days. So uh, game changers sometimes necessitate name-changing uh, I stands for the, and we need, is a fudge factor. This is chapter 10, impartation of salvation to Cornelius in Caesarea. Cornelius was a, was a soldier. He was a centurion for the Romans. And he lived in the Roman capital of the region on the Mediterranean called Caesarea. And through some very direct divine direction, Peter kind of reluctantly went to this Gentile guy's house which technically was not a cool thing to do under the Old Covenant, and preaches Jesus to him. And as soon as he says, if you believe in Jesus, you receive forgiveness of sins, you know what they did? They all believed in Jesus and got their sins forgiven. And then we had a problem because everybody's going, don't you have to become a Jew first before you can believe in the Jewish Messiah and get saved? And chapter 11, Peter had to stand on his head. And yeah, let's go to the next one there, David V. Verification of Gentile salvation by faith in Christ the it's still working its way through the early church's mind that it's okay for Gentiles to get saved just as they are, you know, just as I am. Okay, chapter 12 is what we looked at a couple weeks ago, the execution of James. We had Stephen stoned in chapter 7, one of the deacons. Now we got one of the apostles. And although in chapter 1 the church felt like, hey, we've had 12 apostles, just like we had 12 tribes of Israel, and yet one was not really a real apostle, was he? Judas, the, the traitor. So what did they do in chapter 1? They drew lots to decide who'd be the 12th apostle. But that was a one-time deal. When James was executed, there's no sense for any need. There's no leading of God to replace the apostolate. You know, you had those 12 guys, and now the first one is executed. And yet we have the miraculous escape of Peter. You know, I showed you at the end... Uh, Last week, the back of a tapestry, which looks like a mess, and we flipped it around. We saw this beautiful masterpiece. Quite often, as we're living on this uh, planet, we're looking up at God, we're looking at our circumstances. It can be horrific. We look at the back of the tapestry. It looks like a big mess. But God says, relax. You know, I know what I'm doing. I'm seeing it from the other side. And so I thought that was, uh, even James liked that. So when James likes stuff, it's all good. So Jesus is alive as, we come to chapter 13 today, and A stands for Antioch, the, the, the church in Antioch sends out missionaries, right? We're going to have Saul slash Paul, Barnabas, and uh, and Mark. And then just to show you what we're going to see next week, or in the next couple of weeks, chapter 4, synagogues attack Paul and Barnabas. If we had more time, we'd go all black to that, and we'd go over it again. I can get you a copy of that, and, and it's kind of a neat way to carry around all 28 chapters in your head. Okay, let's go to the next one. Let's focus on our 13 verses today. Uh, the story of, of Mark's major failure in Acts 13 isn't the whole story, okay? Uh, a lot of us have done things we're not proud of, and some of us have been caught. God knows it all, and we all have weaknesses, and we've all done stuff we shouldn't have done. But isn't it sad when, like, one of the worst things you ever do is is in public and is recorded in the New Testament? 
uh, I debated about doing this today, and I decided not to. But um, if you YouTube Miss South Carolina several years ago at the Miss Teen USA pageant, they had the last five ladies and uh, decide who's going to be Miss Teen USA. And, uh, you know, they ask them a question. And if you YouTube Miss Teen USA, uh, Miss South Carolina, have you seen this video? Uh, she's the first one. And they come up and it says something like, uh, surveys show that most Americans can't locate Iraq on a map. Why do you think this is? And she goes, she'd obviously been trained to put certain words in her answer, and uh, she gets her hands on her hips, gets the beauty pageant thing, and goes, well, I think, whereas, so forth, uh, that this is correct, because uh, this is almost verbatim, because I show it to my speech class every year, saying, you may be nervous about the first speech, but trust me, yours won't be this bad. <laughs> and I always say, you know, I'm not making fun of this lady, because, you know, it was her worst moment in her life, and so on national television, but she, uh, I think this is probably because most Americans don't have, like they have in North Africa, in the Iraq, and the other places of the world. And so I think the government should buy maps. And it's like, what? You know? And then there's a parody response to that that shows Einstein scratching his head saying, I don't know what that chick just said. You know, so we show both of those in speech, and trust me, they like it. But my point is, like, like the worst moment of her life was on national television. And the worst moment, probably in spiritually speaking, in Mark's life, is in the New Testament. Uh, and uh, so I got a kind of feel for the guy. And yet he did some fairly important things after this unfortunate mistake. So God is the God of second chances. James and I were talking about that uh, today. Now, you know, there's some stupid things we can do. It's like jumping off a building. You know, if you decide to jump off a building halfway down, you say, no, I don't want to do that. Too late. You know, so you cannot presume on the grace of God. But if you read the book of Jonah, you know, the book basically says, and the word of God came to the prophet Jonah and said, go to Nineveh, your hated enemies, and tell them the good news, basically. And he goes, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't even want to see them get saved. You know, they might believe it. You know, so he gets on a boat, goes the opposite way. God sends a very unique kind of submarine to get him back on the land. In chapter 3, he says, And so the word of the Lord came a second time to Jonah. Go, hey, boy, go to Nineveh. I'll, I'll repeat myself. I'll say it more slowly this time, you know, for you. So God is a God of second chances. Let's not presume on that. But as long as there's life, there's hope. Next uh, slide. So the passage breaks down into a big part and a little part. We're going to see the first missionary journey begins with Mark, the eventual author of the Gospel of Mark, as an integral part of the team. That's the last verse of chapter 12 all the way through chapter uh, verse 12 of chapter 13. And then the little part is verse 13. The first missionary journey ends for Mark. It begins for Mark with good stuff. It ends for Mark just about a third of the way through the to the thing as he deserts the team and goes back to his mom. Okay, next slide, David. Yeah, we're going to see context, commission, and completion of the first phase of the first missionary journey. Let's read verse 25 of the previous chapter. Just to remind you what's going on. You know, we've got uh, the execution of James and the miraculous release of Peter. God's purposes for Peter then were different than his purposes for James. And if you're James's mother, you got to scratch your head on that one. But... We're looking at the tapestry from the ugly side, from the messy side, right? But you remember that at the end of chapter 11, verse 29 and 30 of chapter 11, context is always key to all Bible study, in proportion that any of the disciples in Antioch, about 250 miles north of Jerusalem, where the church is really working, uh, had means they took up a financial collection to help the anticipated needs of the church in and around Jerusalem, and they sent the money with Barnabas and with Saul, and then we're told about James in Jerusalem and Peter in Jerusalem, and then we're told in the aftermath of that, verse 25 of chapter 12, that after all of these violent and amazing things that are happening in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. They went down there with the money for the church in Jerusalem to help them. Uh, when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John called Mark, 
we knew that when Peter got released from prison miraculously, he goes to John Mark's mother's house where there's a prayer meeting. John Mark is Mark. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So we've got Paul slash Saul, Barnabas, and now Mark from Jerusalem at Antioch Bible Fellowship. That's the context of the uh, first missionary journey. Uh, go to the next slide there, David. Yeah, just to kind of remind you here, here's Jerusalem, right? Uh, Dead Sea, Jordan River, Sea of Galilee, there's Jerusalem. Antioch's up here. So we've got Saul and Barnabas and John Mark, who lives there, is coming up to help the guys up in Antioch. And that's the context. Now look at verse 1 through 3 of chapter 13. Look at the commission of these three guys for the first missionary journey. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets, people who were receiving direct divine revelation, prophets and apostles or special first century sign gifts given before the New Testament had been written. And these guys are receiving direct divine revelation as leaders in the church. And you also have teachers. What do teachers do? We don't receive direct divine revelation. We teach written revelation. As Luther said very well, we have infallible inspiration and fallible interpreters. I have no authority on my own despite all of my wonderful academic accomplishments, including cramming four years of Dallas Seminary into three. If you want to know, the details will come out in the movie if you want to watch it sometime. They're trying to decide who's going to play me, you know. It's between Pee Wee Herman and Tom Cruise, and we haven't decided yet. Uh, so we got prophets and teachers Sensing something big is about to happen, and we have five of them listed. Barnabas, you know him. Simeon, also called Niger, which means dark skin. So we've got different countries, colors, and countries coming together uh, where God's working at Antioch Bible Fellowship. No uh, discrimination based on skin color or stuff like that. Lucius of Cyrene, that's in northern Africa. And Manan, who had been brought up with, who grew up with, Herod the Tetrarch. Next slide, David. Remember last week. Oh, you know what? I forgot about this one. It's good. Talking about prophets. Uh, since about 1900, the modern charismatic uh, movement uh, that started in Los Angeles, California. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But uh, they claim to have apostles and prophets. Uh, I would beg to disagree with that if you want to use those terms non-technically with lower cases as Barnabas is going to be called a lowercase apostle in Acts. I'm fine with that. But here's the problem. Once you grant the charismatic wing of evangelicalism having apostles and prophets, you, you better start writing everything down the prophets are saying in the back of your Bible. I guess that's why you have blank pages in the back of your Bible, right? Um, but you're also opening the door to other groups. I would say non-Christian cultic groups like Mormons and I was doing something for second hour today for the young adults, and I went to their website, which is mormon.org. I mean, where did they come up with that? You know, so that's really a good, good web name. And uh, this is directly from their website. And here's the picture. Uh, God reveals truth and communicates through modern prophets, all caps on their website, just as he did with ancient prophets. One of the deals about Mormonism is uh, when... God, the Father, and Jesus appeared to Joseph Smith, who was praying about what church to attend in Palmyra, New York, in the 1830s. They said, don't go to any of them. They're all an abomination. We're going to show you what you need to know to fix it. And so Mormons, since that day, are claiming to get direct divine revelation. Uh, they went west. They're very, you know, you'd love to have a Mormon as a neighbor. They're very clean cut. Uh, and uh, they vote Republican, and it's, it's, it's wonderful. But um, the problem is... They're not a Christian denomination. They're a fairly recent Christian cult that spun off and denies things like the deity of Christ and salvation by grace and the sufficiency of Scripture and little things like that that are essential things. So anyway, be careful of people who claim to be getting direct divine revelation. I personally don't buy that. I think we've got divine revelation. And then we go from there with wisdom and, and hopefully some humility. Last week we talked about Herod the Great because we referred to one of his sons in the line there, but go to the next one. We're told now that this one gentleman of the five leaders in Antioch grew up with Herod the Tetrarch, better known as Herod Antipas, who's the son of Herod the Great. So, And this guy's a believer now. Go back to, to the Acts passage, uh, verse 1. 
uh, it says that Manan had been brought up with Herod, uh, the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, and Saul. So we got Barnabas and Saul and these other three guys. Verse 2, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, uh, you fast to free up time and attention to what's really important from time to time voluntarily. It's not commanded in the New Testament. It's strongly encouraged, however, I'd say, by example. The Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them to do. I want them to do the first missionary journey, as we call it now. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, not to give some kind of special unction, but just to identify with and promise prayer support and other support and that will identify with your mission, even though you get to go, they sent them on their way. I know that Ken and Ray and Clay and Carol and Rigoberto and um, uh, Manuel and Brad uh, would say that we were the fortunate ones. We're like Barnabas and, and Paul and Mark's going to be mentioned in a minute who actually get to go boots on the ground to central Mexico. But the church sends us, the church prays for us with no extortion or no much promotion. The Pueblo Fund always bubbles up every year because people voluntarily plug in and give to the Pueblo Fund to help defray most of our expenses. So I always feel like we're the fortunate ones. We're, we're the guys on the space capsule, the 10,000 people on the ground making the space program works. Don't actually get the, the privilege of actually being in the capsule, but we get to do that. And I'm sure Paul and Barnabas felt the same way. Context, commission. Now let's look at the completion of the first phase of the first missionary journey, verses 4 through 12. And let's go to the next slide there, David. Um, this is a broad shot. We're going to expand it in a moment. But here's the well, eastern part of the Mediterranean basin. Here's Israel. Okay, Riley, here's where Jesus ministered in and around Jerusalem and certainly in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, in here. But now we've gone 250 miles. It's always Antioch that sends all these missionaries out. They're really... Uh, uh, in, in many ways are an extension of Jerusalem, but have exceeded what Jerusalem's able to do at that point. First missionary journey basically is walk to a port, sail across to this island, walk across the island, go up to the underside of what we call Turkey, go 15 miles inland. That's where John Mark decides to go home. And then they go, Paul and Barnabas go to the Galatian churches. These are Galatian people ethnically. Antioch, that's Syrian Antioch. That's Pisidian Antioch. It's different cities. Antioch, Iconium, Lister, and Derby. Revisit and then get, sail right back to the port and back to Antioch. That's basically what it is. Now let's go to the next map and we'll talk about that in a minute. But let's read a couple of verses here. Look at verses 4 and 5. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, as just described in verses 1, 2, and 3, they went down, they walked 15 miles from Antioch to uh Seleucia, which is the port there in Syria. And uh, from there they sailed to Cyprus. So it was a 15-mile walk, 60-mile boat ride, so they can walk 90 miles across that island. When they had reached Salamis, they began to proclaim in, in uh, Cyprus on the island, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues. What's the synagogue? It's where the Jewish people worship on Saturday. They always start with the synagogue preaching about Jesus the Messiah. Why does that make sense? Because Jewish people were looking for the Messiah, right? It's all about Old Testament prophecy. However, after you start there, they would specifically reach out to Gentiles as well. They're doing both, not either or, but it's just a matter of some strategic order there. And Paul talks about that a lot, even in some of his epistles, as you probably know, right? Now, uh, that's kind of an enlargement of that. So, We've got, as we're going to see, John Mark mentioned here in a minute, we're in Antioch, they pray about it, they feel a direct leading, um, and they don't all go. Three of those guys stay and run the church. The other two, Saul and Barnabas, along with John Mark, go to the seaport, sail 16 miles here, start in Salamis, and work from uh, the northeast to the southwest, just across the island, to the two major cities and everything in between. Boom, that's what they're doing. And it's interesting, they got John Mark as a helper, as we'll see. Uh, just like on the second missionary journey, Paul gets Timothy as a helper. Um, yeah, look at verse 5 again. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also, by the way, don't let me forget, they had John 
as their helper. Now, Brian, I thought you said it was Mark. I've heard of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This says John. You're saying Mark. Go back to chapter 12, verse 12. When uh, Peter is released supernaturally from jail, James wasn't released supernaturally. He got executed. But God's purpose for Peter was different. Uh, when he realized this wasn't a dream, Peter, uh, that he'd been miraculously delivered by an angel out of prison, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark. Okay? Okay? John Mark is, is, is Mark, not John. Not John the Apostle. So go back to Acts chapter 13. Uh, so they're taking John Mark as their helper, right? Now look at uh, verse 6 through 8. When they had gone through the whole island of Cyprus, as far as Paphos, so they start in Salamis, they go to the provincial capital of Paphos, there was a, a road such as it was there, and that's where most of the people lived along that road anyway. So they go to the major cities where most of the people are. When you go fishing, you go where the fish are, right? Uh, that makes sense there. Common sense is great to apply to biblical tasks. We're supposed to do that. He assumes we will do that. Uh, they found a magician, and we're not t- talking about Houdini or David Copperfield. We're not talking about white magic. We're talking about black magic. A Jewish, Jewish background, false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus. So see, bars is always something about the bars, except bar means son of here in this uh, context. So uh, son of Yeshua, which was a common name, Joshua, uh, means God's savior or savior, and it applies in a special way to our Lord Jesus. Verse 7, who was with, that is Bar-Jesus or Elimas, as he's also known, the wise one, the great one, you know, um, uh, who was with the uh, proconsul of the island, Sergius Paulus, a man of, and Sergius Paulus, the guy who's kind of the governor, Roman governor of the island, was a man of intelligence. And this was a, a intellectually and spiritually curious person. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Now, it wasn't uncommon among superstitious Romans for leaders to kind of get astrologers or magicians to kind of help them you know, uh, I haven't told this joke in a while, but toward the end of World War II, uh, Hitler did have an astrologer, which was the least of his problems. But that is a problem, right? But toward the end of World War II, and it's obviously what was going to happen, he called the, his astrologer to him and he said, I want you to tell me on what day I will die. And the astrologer said, well, give me a couple of days, I'll work up your chart. And he's got a big smile on his face. Now, he uh, so he says, I'll, I'll come back on Tuesday. Comes back on Tuesday and he says, Fuhrer, we've, we've worked up your chart. You will die on a Jewish holiday. And Hitler goes, okay, well, which one? You know, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, I mean, which one? And the astrologer said the famous words, hey, buddy, any day you die will be a Jewish holiday. <laughs> That's what the man said. So... um Hitler had his astrologer. A lot of these Roman uh, leaders would have spiritual advisors as well as official governmental advisors. Uh, if you look at the emails, you won't believe who, advi- who was advising the Secretary of State a few years ago, but that's uh, something different. Phew. Just check it out. Sorry. Uh, I told myself, don't do that, but I did it anyway. But, uh, yeah, he's, so he's there. But he's also open to other things. We've got, God bless him for that, right? I mean, the Spirit's working in his heart. So he, the leader there, the governor, summoned Barnabas and Saul. He's, they're apparently preaching. People, there's a buzz. They've got a different message. Bring him in. I want to see what they're saying. But uh, Elimas, the magician, that's his name. That's what his name is translated, his nickname, the great one, was opposing them. He could see they're going to pull the rug out from under his job, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Hey, real quick, an interesting thing is when you read about Pontius Pilate, who's the governor of Judea, he's called the procurator. But this guy, uh, Sergius Paulus, is called the proconsul. Now watch this. Luke is always very precise in his use of terminology. And this tripped up and it showed the bias of certain liberal critical scholars in the early phase of the liberal critical assault uh, in the late 19th, early 20th century because they didn't have all that information. And they had dug up stuff that said the Roman governors were called procurators. 
And a lot of those liberal critical scholars were saying, hey, Luke just goofed. Because we know the governors are called procurators. They're not, they're not called procounsels. So he made a mistake. There's a mistake in the New Testament, Solomon, right there. But then they kept digging. You get more data, you know. And we found out that the Romans divided their uh, empire into provinces, like we divide our country into states, right? And you had kind of regular provinces, and then you had senatorial provinces. The regular provinces were under the direct thumb of the emperor. The senatorial provinces, there are just a few of them, were under the uh, direct leadership and governance of the Roman Senate. For those who were the governors of the regular provinces, they're called procurators. For those who were the governors of the senatorial provinces, just a handful of them, including Cyprus, you know what they called them, what the title was? Proconsul. So Luke was right, and the brainiacs in Germany, England, and the United States back in the early phases of liberal critical scholarship uh, were wrong. And that's what generally happens. You dig up more information, and it all works out, right? Uh, when you say it's raining cats and dogs, you're not, the Bible's not saying it's raining small mammals, right? I mean, when you, when you use languages like that, or conventions like that, the, the readers knew what it meant. So anyway, look. So Elymas, you know, is obviously very threatened by the fact that his, his, uh, boss is gonna interact with Barnabas and, uh, Saul. And so he's opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, and here's the big one here, Blanche, who was also known as Paul. And from that point on in Acts and through the rest of the New Testament, with a couple of exceptions, he's Paul. He's Paul. He's Paul. N- next uh, next slide there, Dave. David. Yeah. You know, Saul and Paul rhyme in English, which makes us think they're almost interchangeable, but they were distinct. Uh, Saul would have been the Jewish, the religious name that the man would have been given at, at birth. It was a very uh, esteemed name, just like George was the most popular name in the first hundred years of American history because George Washington, Saul was the first king of the United Tribes of Israel. Now, he wasn't an ideal king, but still the name had that kind of clout, kind of had some, some buzz about it. So he was the first tribe of the UTI, United Tribes of Israel, Saul, David, Solomon, split, right? So that was a very distinguished name. But now, I think in part because this is the first time we've got targeted positive interaction between New Testament Christians and a Roman government official. We've had some interaction with government officials, but they've all been because they're trying to put the pressure on us or they're going to kill us. This is the first time he's invited them in and tell tell me what you're saying. And so I think this is a turning point probably in Luke's mind and in Paul's mind as to his, Paul's the apostle to the Gentiles, as he describes himself later, uh, in their mind. So this this is big. And so if you circle stuff in your Bible to put stars, and Michelle, if you don't do that, why? I mean, pencils aren't that expensive. You really should do that. But, uh, yeah, that would be a, a good uh, verse uh, to circle. Now, the word Paul just means small. And I think uh, what Paul's saying, one reason he braces the name is just because it's not about me, you know. I'm just a helper. I'm about the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm about the grace of God and salvation by grace through faith alone. And so it's not about me. Focus on the, the big thing. I'm just the water boy. But uh, Saul looks at this no doubt demon-possessed false prophet magician guy and says, you are full of all deceit and fraud. You're just in it for the money and your own personal power. You son of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness. Righteousness. I don't think Saul has read uh, Dale Carnegie's book, How to Make Friends and Influence People. Will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Why are you getting in our way, man? If you're not interested, just bug out. But don't get between us and this guy. He wants to hear it. Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. He's going to be struck with temporary blindness. Now, Saul is a guy who can understand Temporary blindness, can he, Meg? How come? Yeah, when he first came to faith, he was struck blind for several days, and it's very disorienting. Um, you know, Bill Shelton he lost his sight after World War II, and, uh, you know, uh, they had a renovated garage. He'd hang out in his garage most of the time with uh, 
the golf tournament, you know, turned on, uh, as loud as possible, but with the lights off, you know. Sometimes you just have the radio on with the lights off. And I had several people, I'd take people over there and they'd go, when we'd leave, I can't believe he had his lights out. In his, in his garage. I, was, I mean, think about it. Think about it. The man's blind. He doesn't, he doesn't need the lights, you know. He had this walking machine. You can get them at Walmart. They, they're really, really quite good. What's the, what's the name for this thing where you go like this? The, the, yeah, Nordic Track's the good one, but you can get a Gazelle, which is kind of a cheap version, but it's really good. He would get on that thing by himself, man, and, and this, and, uh, since Marie's not here, but you can validate it, you know how I feel about Marie, but, uh, man, she had a, a beautiful house, but she had all kinds of, did she have a lot of stuff, Phyllis? Can you give me an amen on that? And, uh, it's almost as bad as our house, and, uh, but they had little trails you could walk through all the debris, you know. And Bill, with a cane, uh, was able to navigate that beautifully. But, uh, you know, I remember thinking of a blind person. And I tell you what, uh, the first time I taught on uh, John 9, after Bill started coming to the church where Jesus heals the blind man, when you're looking at a blind man, talking about Jesus healing a blind man, as a preacher is thinking, I wonder if Bill's going to think, why doesn't he heal me? And I'm going to say one reason stuff like that's in the Bible because it's unique and God can do stuff like that, but it's kind of rare, right? He can, but he's got a different purpose for Bill than he did for the guy in John 9. But Paul just takes him head on, doesn't he? And so uh, it says, you're full of deceit. Now behold, the hand of the Lord's upon you. Uh, you're going to get in the way of the gospel. God's not going to let you do that effectively. Uh, you're going to be blind, not see the sun for a time, and immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, Elamos. And he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Now the guy who was trying to advise the governor needs somebody to lead him around by the hand. Kind of kind of ironic there. Then the proconsul believed. Sergius Paulus, the governor of Syria, becomes a born-again Christian. Active, receptive trust in Christ. Um and it's catalyzed by the putting down of the guy, but miracles don't necessarily uh, cause faith, but they certainly can catalyze, speed up the process. Not everybody who saw the miracles of Jesus believed in Jesus. Being amazed at the teaching of, and that genitive should be mean about, the teaching about the Lord. What did Paul tell him about the Lord? He told him about that Jesus had come, died, rose from the dead through faith in him. You could have eternal life, and the guy believed. Next slide. One of my favorite statements on saving faith is Acts 4, 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes, pistuo, is non-meritorious. It's not promising or quitting or doing. Salvation is not about what you can do for the Lord. It's about what the Lord has done for you. But to the one who doesn't work, whatever believing is, it's not work because he just excluded that. But to the one who does not work, but believes, active, receptive, trust, in the sufficiency of Christ Jesus to save on him who justifies the ungodly. Who's the only people who get saved in God's program? Ungodly. You might be a righteous, ungodly person or unrighteous, ungodly person. His, the ungodly person who believes faith is reckoned as righteousness. Our sin imputed to Christ and judged when the sinner believes that's applied to us plus Christ's righteousness goes to Kathy Bowers and she has a perfect righteous standing it's called justification by faith. Next slide. So we've seen the first missionary journey begins with Mark as an integral part of the team. Now verse 13, and we're going to see the first missionary journey ends for Mark as he uh, deserts the team and goes home to be with his mom. Uh, and look what happens in verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions. And notice that Paul is not Barnabas and Saul. Now it's Paul and his companions. Paul has, by nature of his uh, gifts and his performance, uh, has become the leader, the captain of the team, you might say. But now Paul and his companions put out the sea from Paphos, that uh, port on the southwest part of the island, and came to Perga, Perga. And I think I've got another map coming up, David, maybe. Yeah, broad view, but just bear with me. So they've been here where they dealt with Sergius Paulus and with the false prophet. So they get in the boat. They actually go to the uh, to the uh, capitals. No, I mean to the seaport, which is not mentioned. 
uh, and we'll see it on the way back. And then they go about 15 miles into Perga. So that's where we are now. And this is modern Turkey today, but the Romans broke it down in different uh, subcategories. But they go from uh, Paphos to Perga in Pamphylia. Now, they actually named that after Pam Cox. That was the region right there, Pamphylia. Uh, but John, and I'm calling him Mark just because we know him better as Mark, and we've already we're told his name is Mark too, left them and returned to Jerusalem. Uh, why in the world would he leave at this point? And I will say, when you read this verse, look at this, Shana, uh, it's almost like an aside. It's almost like very subtle. Oh, by the way, you know, they left uh, Barnabas's home island. We're told back in chapter 4, Barnabas was from Cyprus originally, so that made sense. He knew, knew his way around. Uh, we know Paul's from that region in Turkey near there, Tarsus, not super close, but in that general region. So we're going from Barnabas's island to Saul's, Paul's original homeland. And by the way, when they get to Perga, Mark left them and went back to Jerusalem. But going on, this happens, that happens, and great things keep happening. It's almost like an aside, but why did he quit? Uh, correct answer is we don't know. You're going to be able to ask him in heaven and find out. Uh, you're not surprised that commentators have all kinds of suggestions, and I think it makes a lot of sense to say he's probably just tired and homesick, if nothing else. Um, he may be one of those super spiritual types that say, you know, just nothing is happening. You never start anything on time, and I don't like Barnabas's jokes. They're never funny. Telling about astrologers and Hitler and all that, you know, that's probably not very spiritual. And, uh, you know, he's got his reasons. People always have their reasons. But just like I'm telling you, somebody doesn't like everything. A lot of times the reason isn't the reason. It's the least embarrassing thing they can tell other people about whatever they did. So if you buy the person's reason as gospel, you're going to be very confused living in life. And I can tell you that now teaching for 12 years part-time at Cameron University I thought I'd heard every excuse in the book as a pastor for 25 years when I started that gig. I have that was wrong, man. You wouldn't believe the kind of excuses college students they have. They're educated, man. They have all kinds of amazing excuses, and a few of them are actually true. You know, so it's an amazing thing. But uh, yeah, so I mean, at this point, John Mark had walked over 100 miles, sailed more than 100 miles. He's probably tired, hungry, and homesick. You have no McDonald's, Clay. You don't have. You go to Puebla, there's no food anywhere in Puebla, is there? I mean, you just got, you can't eat for a week, can you? Most of us come back and we've gained three pounds because between just the McDonald's, uh, they were kidding me about eating a lot of ice cream. But man, when you're in Mexico, you got to have calories. They have ice cream, they got everything you need and more, you know. Uh, they've got, um, what, Cheetos that look like uh, cheese popcorn, you know, as, if you like that. Some of us really do, you know. But he's probably tired, hungry, and homesick. And what I didn't know, or I had forgotten, was that between Perga and where they're going, uh, Antioch's the first major stop, there's a large range of mountains called the Taurus, like bull, mountains. And at that time in the first century, it's full of banditos and bad guys. So it's just physically difficult to get over those mountains up to that plateau well, those cities they're going to deal with are. Plus, it's dangerous. There are bad guys that will beat you up and steal your stuff. Uh, so I think he just figured out, this is a good place for me to quit. Next slide. And you know what? Go to the next one. I, I, I think I left the map out. Uh, next one. Okay. Gotta go back to where we were. That's not quite the latest version. That's okay. Go back to the map we were at, David, for a minute ago. Uh, in the version I wanted to use, if we can go back to uh, the map, yeah. Well, yeah, I guess I did have it. You can't, for some reason, you don't see the, the arrow, but I circled this there in Perga. Uh, I'm not sure how he got back home, but I got a feeling this is a rich kid because she's obviously living in a nice house where they had the big prayer meeting. He probably paid cash for a, a direct uh, boat ride from Perga to Caesarea, the port, and then to Jerusalem. That's where mom is. So I think he's going back to his nice home, and I, I guarantee it was Paul or Barnabas' fault, more likely Paul's because of the thing, or the way things work out. Okay, next slide, please. So here's the thing. That's the story of, of Mark's failure, right, in, in Acts 13, 1 through 13. 
But the story of Mark's failure isn't the whole story. And when you look at the rest of the story, you're going to see some negative consequences, but you're also going to see complete spiritual recuperation over a period of time, right? Uh, And then I put in yellow, oh, by the way, we should probably remember, dot, 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 that this man ends up writing a New Testament, major New Testament book. What was the name of the major book that Mark wrote? Gospel of Mark. So it is possible for real believers to really blow it and yet for God to recuperate them and them to do even greater things afterward. Next slide. Yeah. So let's talk about the rest of the story briefly. First of all, even though Luke, I think, is trying to be subtle and not put salt in the wounds when he just says, oh, by the way, John left them. There's no doubt, and and he's not trying to paper this over, because when you fast forward to chapter 15, verses 36 to 40, to the beginning of the second missionary journey about two years later, after this incident with him leaving, about two years later on a calendar, Barnabas and Paul talk about revisiting the people they had ministered to in the first missionary journey. Look at it. Uh, I'm reading from American Standard. After some days, about two years after the event we just read, about Mark leaving, Paul said to Barnabas, they're back at Antioch, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord. During the first missionary journey, see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with him also. It's been two years. He's got his feet under him. He's more mature. He's ready to go. Let's take him. It'll be good for him, good for us. It's all great. But Paul kept insisting they should not take him along who had deserted, that's a very strong word, left under fire. I'm not sure what we're doing trading one deserter for five uh, kingpins for Al-Qaeda, but in the old days, desertion was could be a capital offense in a combat situation, and that's what he did in a sense here. That's the terminology Luke uses there. He deserted them in Pamphylia, that was the region, Pergus, the city, and had not gone with them on the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated. Who's they? Paul and Barnabas. This is very important. Sometimes you'll have judgment calls in Christian ministry, in local churches, at Tanglewood Bible Fellowship. And well-meaning leaders will say, let's go option A. And well-meaning leaders will say, let's go option B. Uh, whatever the consensus is, we'll try to make it work. That's why we operate around here. Quite often, I've been on the, I've had the short straw in the consensus, and I just try to make it work, and I never get up here and say, well, I wanted to do B, but dumb, dumb, Homer wanted to do A, and so we're going to put up with it, because that's what Rick and Homer wanted to do, and it never works when we do it, but we'll do it anyway. You know, that's not good leadership. You go out there and make it work, and you don't vilify the guy who disagrees with you. Now, they disagreed, and when it said sharp disagreement, they probably got pretty intense, and you could argue it either way. I think Barnabas, and by the way, Barnabas is this guy's cousin, which may be part of it. So he's giving the benefit of the doubt. But he's just saying, hey, it's been two years. I'm convinced, yeah, he blew it and it was, it was bad, but I'm convinced he squared away and it would do him some really good to come with us. He can learn some stuff. And that's Barnabas' opinion. Paul's saying, no, not yet. I'm not sure I can trust him yet. Let's give it another year or two and then we'll see, right? Uh, when you have major public sin in the life of Christians, especially Christian leaders, you use your credit, you lose your credibility, at least for a while, and it takes a while for that to work through the system, right? And exactly, is that six months, six years? It's going to depend on the offense and the situation. But people of good faith can disagree. I don't think Barnabas or Paul are bad guys or unspiritual. They disagree on a judgment call. Let's not vilify everybody in our world who disagrees with our judgment calls, okay? It's okay. For you to do that, it's biblical as seen here. But such a sharp disagreement, they separated. That is, Paul and Barnabas. They don't go together on a second missionary journey as first envisioned. Uh, Barnabas, uh, Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Remember the island? That's where the first missionary journey started. But Paul chose Silas and left, and he went overland back to Iconium, Lystra, Derby, Antioch, there on the plateau above Perga. Uh, and in fact, they pick up Timothy and Lystra and they go on from there. So what happened is, next slide. The cool thing is um, God redeemed the situation, Blanche, because at that point, uh, Paul and Barnabas were not able to agree on the, ma- on the Mark issue. 
And they really weren't able to function well together with that disagreement in the air. But rather than one team kind of revisiting the areas they had been, now we have two teams. Now we know that when Paul, Silas, and Timothy revisit the Galatian churches during the second missionary journey in Acts 16 and following, Paul gets a call to go into Europe. So the gospel trampolines from Asia into Europe. Church tradition, not the book of Acts, tells us that after Barnabas and Mark went to Cyprus, they went to North Africa and planted churches in North Africa. And if that's what happened, Scripture doesn't say it, but early tradition says it, God is encircling the Mediterranean basin, and he's using this uh, uh, inability for these guys to work together to actually do greater things for the kingdom. And I think those kind of things happen. And as we'll see, both Barnabas and Mark reconcile with Paul. They're, they're tight. Uh, in a few years down the road, they don't uh, maintain any active hatred or anything like that for each other. And that's important. Uh, in fact, in Colossians 4.10, we read this. This is Paul writing from Rome to the church uh, Colossae in Asia Minor. He says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you all greetings at the church in Colossae. And also Barnabas's cousin Mark, who's ministering to Paul under his house arrest, sends greetings to the folks in Colossians. And he puts, about whom you've received instructions, probably. There's still that rumor he blew it, and I didn't feel he was ready for the second missionary journey. But we've passed it all up. He's fine now. He's stronger than ever. The grace of God doesn't uh, kick you overboard. He may wear you out on the ship, but he won't kick you overboard, right? And if he comes to you, welcome him. You're, welcome him. In fact, he's working on, a, on, on a, a document you probably ought to read. It's really good about the life of Christ, you know? Next one. Let's go to the very end of Paul's life where everybody's leaving him. Demas has left me. Titus has left me. Only Luke's with me here as I'm waiting for my execution. But Paul says to Timothy, who's the pastor in Ephesus, hey, bring Mark, pick up Mark on your way to come see me and bring him with you because he's useful to me for Christian service. Next one. Uh, Mark, in the aftermath of his disagreement with Paul and his work with Barnabas, ends up being really tight with another apostle. Guess what that apostle's name is? Use the visual aid if you need it. Peter. Yeah. And he wrote his gospel with a lot of input from Peter. And in about 63 A.D., Peter, at the end of his first epistle, says, the church in Babylon, Babylon's code for Rome, in my opinion there, the church in Rome chosen together with you sends you greetings, as does my spiritual son Mark. So the story about Mark's desertion from the mission and even from the faith, possibly, temporarily, in Acts 13, isn't the whole story. Next slide. Uh, here's some more tra- church tradition, tradition, which may or may not be accurate. We'll find out. But it says that eventually, toward the end of his life, he went back to North Africa, where he and Barnabas presumably had gone after they split from Paul. And he pastors the church in one of the largest cities in the ancient world, Alexandria. And eventually, he's so effective, he's executed for the faith by the direct orders of the Roman emperor. So he was public enemy number one. He went from, you know... Uh, infamy to uh, fame in uh, serving the Lord. Next slide, and we're about to, to conclude here. The story of Mark's major failure in Acts 13 isn't the whole story. Serious spiritual failure in the lives of Christians always has serious consequences. You lose your uh, credibility, at least for a while. You lose the joy of your fellowship. <clears throat> you lose a lot of opportunities you've got to serve and minister. But, you know, I don't know if I stole this from somebody, not maliciously, or I made it up myself. But this has helped a lot of people. God is no less gracious to believers who blow it than he is to unbelievers who come to faith in the first place. We're very comfortable telling bank robbers, child molesters, drug pushers, if you'll trust Christ, repent, trust in Christ, boom, you can have eternal life. They're not beyond redemption, of course not. But then a believer or professed believer does something terrible, and we... We tend to want to write them off. We tend to want to shoot our wounded. Uh, Paul wasn't saying this guy can't be a believer. He can never be of service to me. He just said, we haven't had enough time. I can't trust him yet. And this is a responsible position. I've got to be able to trust he's not going to leave. If, if we've got to climb a mountain. Or if we've got to go not to McDonald's that day, but to Vips. You know, those, those, kind of, those are the kind of issues you've got to deal with in Mexico nowadays. 
uh, which aren't that hard. But uh, God's not less gracious to believers who fail than to unbelievers who come to Christ for salvation in the first place. Does that make sense? I mean, think about it, okay? Go to the next slide. Real believers can do really dumb things. This is why we're told, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Pride goes before a fall. Next slide. You might say to Mark, without encouraging it, you might say, welcome to the club. Can you think of any people that are probably going to be in heaven that have really blown it in their spiritual lives? Adam and Eve, a special case. Noah gets off the ark and gets drunk. Let's have a party. We survived the flood. Abraham does a lot of shady things. You wouldn't want him teaching Sunday school here or junior church or doing super summer. Jacob, are you kidding me? He's a slime ball. Uh, and yet we're told the kingdom's all about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're all going to be there. A lot of us are too spiritual to hang out with people like that. Judah, you won't believe what he does in, in Genesis 39. I'm not even going to go there. Uh, Moses is not allowed to go in the promised land. Uh, Saul, first king of Israel, filled with the Spirit early on. That sounds like regeneration to me. Does does pretty well. And then he blows at the end. David, uh, Homer asked me about this recently. People wonder. He's called a man after God's own heart. And yet he has adultery with a soldier in the field's wife, brings him into town, sets him up to be murdered on the front lines, marries her. And it goes on to cover the problems. And uh, how can you call that a guy after God's own heart? You won't believe how gracious is when he looks at his children. There are always consequences. There's always disaster in his whole family because of his nefarious activities with women. But he looks at the whole stretch of it, like the, whole, like the stock market. Don't look at your stocks last week. Don't look at them. It'll break your heart. But you back off, look at the whole system. God looks at the whole system. He likes it. Solomon... He had, what, he had uh, 700 wives and 300 porcupines. I mean, not concubines. Jonah takes him a couple of tries to get started. Jonah protests his righteousness so much he becomes self-righteous. Habakkuk uh, freaks out when God reveals a little bit of the plan, which is one reason he doesn't reveal a lot of the plan, because we'd all freak out. Elijah gets depressed and is convinced he's the only one who cares. Asaph goes for a whole psalm whining about how pitiful the situation is before he sees the light. Uh, Zechariah doubts God, is struck dumb for a while. John the baptizing Jews says from a prison cell, Hey, Jesus, are you the Christ or should we be looking for somebody else? Hurry up and do something. I'm in jail here. They're going to chop my head off if you don't hurry up, which is what happens. LFSF means like father, like son. Peter denies Christ under fire. Yodi and Syntyche. They can't get along in the church. They, they're implacable, and they probably blame the pastor. So both of them blame the pastor. That, that's happened to me. I couldn't, have, I couldn't be the fault for both of them, but, uh, you know. And the Apostle John worships an angel in John 22 after being told in, uh, in Revelation 22, after being told in Revelation 19, don't you do that. That's serious sin. So I'll end here. Serious spiritual failures in the life of Christians like Ken Wanger, Brad McCoy, uh, Kyleen Driggs or any of you can undermine our credibility and thus our ability to serve in certain ways, at least for a time, a la Mark Paul's judgment call. But the grace of God can work to catalyze spiritual renewal, even in the worst cases, and that reality, number one, should be recognized by believers and churches. I'm biased. I've been here a while. I think this church gets that. We're not encouraging people to do all kinds of slimy stuff. We've had people do and say all kinds of nasty things about some of us. And when they come back, if they come back, we work, we welcome them like war heroes, man. We're just happy to see them. You don't have to shine my shoes. Now, I've got several people wash my car every Tuesday, but that's just me. No, I'm kidding. We should pray in that direction when that happens, whether they end up back at their original church or not. And we should uh, embrace and rejoice when that thing happens. Let me suggest uh, every time we read the Gospel of Mark, we ought to do that, because here's a guy that bombed out, and if he just stayed crying in his milk, you would have never heard of him. But he confessed, got back on the wagon, even eventually even Paul sees it. And he's picky. He's a Pharisee, right? That's his background. So where well, there's life, there's hope. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, without ever presuming on your grace and your forgiveness and your faithfulness, help us to realize you're a God of grace, and you're not any less gracious to believers that stumble and fail 
than you are to unbelievers who come uh, initially as you draw them and open their eyes to see. And let that be an encouragement for us. We All of us know people, maybe they're in our families, maybe they're people we work with, maybe they're students of mine, uh, maybe they're people in the city, uh, maybe they're people who've been on the fringes of this church or another church for a long time, and we wonder whether they're even saved at all. And if they are, we wonder what in the world's going on. And sometimes we even write them off and just say we'll never see it again. Uh, forgive us for not assuming uh, that you can and will be at work to restore them if they're really regenerate, and you'll do that in your time and your way, whether we see it or not. But help us to ex- anticipate that and pray about that and and hope for that, and, and, and including when we do stuff we're not proud of ourselves. We thank you that the grace that saves us calls us right back to fellowship even when we do some really, really stinky, edgy things. And we praise you for that grace. In Jesus' name.